Well, good morning again. My son Noah back there was uh, leaving the hymns from the back. Uh, he's, he's got the little hand motion going, so uh, pretty soon he'll be a uh, song leader, I guess, up here. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, the past few times I've been uh, up here and had the privilege to speak, uh, we've been looking at covenants that God has made with man. Uh, we've looked at the Noahic covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the law covenant, the land covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And this Lord's Day, uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at the new covenant. And it's going to take two meetings to kind of go over how it really falls into place because the new covenant has an ultimate fulfillment in the millennial kingdom when all of Israel and Judah will be brought together and there's certain promises that go along with that. Um, but there's also the new covenant that we are partakers of. And we're going to see from the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament how we are partakers of this new covenant and the blessings that come of it. Um, so this morning what we're going to do is look at why there was a need for a new covenant uh, with the people, the children of Israel in particular. So in the Noahic covenant we remember that the key feature of it was preservation. Uh, God had judged the earth with a flood and he had made a covenant that never again would he judge the earth with flood. Um, so it was a covenant of preservation, that he would preserve the world until the time that he would redeem it. And we know that creation today groans and cries after even the coming of the Lord, that all this curse of sin would be uh, made right. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the big key to that is relationship. Uh, we see that Abraham was promised a seed that would bless all the nations. Um, so it's based on a relationship uh, to Abraham and Abraham's seed. Uh, the importance of that covenant. The law really brought out God's righteousness, everything that needs to take place in order to even be in the presence of God, all the, the order and ritual, uh, the sins that need to be covered and paid for, um, really is brought out in the law. The land uh, brings about God's faithfulness. Uh, God said that he would both, both bless and curse the people based on obedience or disobedience, and he was faithful no matter which one came about, that he was faithful to his word. Uh, the Davidic covenant, that God would have a man to sit on the throne of the line of David, uh, shows forth God's mercy, and that no matter how far and, and how many sins the, the line of David committed and was guilty of, that God would show mercy to them in order to preserve them, that a seed would come to sit on the throne. Uh, the new covenant, the big key to that is going to be the grace of God, and that God is going to freely give something that we knew we couldn't get on our own. Um, so that's why it's a very important covenant. Uh, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, really, Jeremiah 31 is the key passage uh, for this portion, but the, that portion is given in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, so we're going to kind of kill two birds with one stone, or with one shot, as, as we're going to. So um, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to begin reading in verse 6. Uh, this is talking about really uh, the, the high priestly ministry of Christ, that he is a better high priest. Um, and then it's going into the fact that he's a better high priest and he has a better ministry too. Uh, so that's the, the context really of this uh, chapter uh, 8, verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, 
Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with thee, with the house of Israel, after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So what we have here, as I said, there's a portion in Jeremiah 31. And the context of Jeremiah 31 is Jeremiah is pronouncing that the people of Judah are going to be taken away into captivity. And they're going to be there for 70 years because they, of their sin. They did not allow the land to rest and they did not repent when the word of the Lord came. So they're going to be judged, they're going to be taken away into captivity, and Jeremiah is speaking of the fact that he's going to bring them back. It's 70 years, and he's going to bring them back, and then he gives them the hope of this future day when he will make a new covenant with the children of Israel. Um, so we want to kind of take a step back and think of being a children of one of the children of Judah at the time when they're being attacked and going to be led away captive. So we've seen the nation of Israel has already been been taken years before. Uh, Isaiah had prophesied and we know that the Assyrians came and they took Israel and they took them away captive and uh, they were scattered uh, throughout the, the Near East. Um, now all of a sudden the Babylonians have come to power and they are the dominant power in the region and Jeremiah is prophesying that they're going to be taken away captive. And the tone of that in that day was basically the children of Judah we're saying, God is done with his promises to us. Uh, he's not going to fulfill them. He's going to cast us off. There's really no hope for us. Um, you know, the promises that God made with the fathers, he's, he's not going to honor. And, and this, is, this is the end for us. And that was the feeling that they had. Um, that's still a feeling that people hold uh, today, that God is done with Israel and Judah. So that's the tone of really how everything is being put into place. And right now, the, the children of Judah are they're depressed. They're under attack. Um, part of the captivity has already gone away, and now Babylon has returned and is going to take away more. And we see that eventually they come back and they destroy the temple, and they take everything, and they, they, they scatter everybody throughout the Near East. So it's in a very dire time for the children of Israel that this prophecy comes to them. And when the prophecy comes, it comes to give them hope, hope of a future day, hope of a future day when they will no longer have to adhere to all these standards. We know that the law was written on tablets of stone, um, but in this promise, it's going to be written in their minds and written on their hearts. Um, and in that sense, if something's in your heart, you, you have a will to do it and you have a power to do it. So they'll be able to accomplish the things that God had set forth. The problem with the Old Covenant is that they didn't have the power to fulfill it. Um, this was a pattern given to them to show them what it took to dwell in the presence of God. And they were supposed to be a testimony and a witness to all the nations of the one true God. 
that by obeying his word, God would honor his promises. So at this point, Christ is now being presented as a great high priest. Now, in order to present him as a greater high priest than the high priest that they have at this time, um, he's got to show that he's a minister of better things. And one of the things he's a minister of is this new covenant. Uh, that's why in chapter 9, he's going to go directly to the Day of Atonement. If he can prove that Christ's uh, ministry on, on the Day of Atonement and that comparison is greater, then he's pretty much won his, his audience to the truth that Christ is a, a greater uh, high priest. Um, so here in verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Um, we remember the promises of the Old Testament were, if you do this, I will do that. Uh, the new promises are, God will do this. Uh, there is no if, there are no conditions. Once you enter into relationship by faith, all these promises are given to you. Uh, so he's uh, established upon better promises. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Uh, for finding fault with them, he saith. So the issue was, uh, there was an issue with the old covenant. Uh, the issue was, we're disobedient people, and we cannot fulfill the law. Uh, we do not have the power or ability to achieve the righteousness of God on our own. That's the problem with the old covenant. And we see that the children of Israel were given these covenants, or given these, this, this covenant of law to obey. And when they disobeyed, God didn't immediately, he immediately judged them, but he gave them opportunity to return. But it was in the heart of man not to return. It was in the heart of man to continue to go away from the Lord, to get farther and farther away. And so we see that this was all going to be a picture that he would preserve his people even though he was going to send them out into captivity for, for 70 years, he was going to bring back a remnant. He was going to have his people there in Jerusalem. And we know that in a future day, he will have the children of Israel there in Jerusalem as the Lord reigns for a thousand years in that city. Uh, so here we, really the, the Spirit is going over a process of why the new covenant was necessary. Uh, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So he's, he's very specific. He doesn't say that he's going to make a new covenant with, with everyone. He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And we looked in the past how important promises are and how important we identify who the recipients are of promises. And to remember that I cannot claim every promise in the scripture. I think that's an important thing to remember. Not every promise was given to me to claim. Um, I can claim God's faithfulness to his promises, that the promises he has made me, he is faithful. But I cannot claim promises he's made to, to other nations or other groups that do not apply to me. Um, so in this portion, he's speaking directly of uh, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So that's, that's the issue. They, they didn't continue. They started off, um, actually they started off poorly, and uh, they kind of would figure it out for a time, and then they would, you know, peter out and, and wouldn't fulfill the, the relationship. 
Uh, so we have, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. So it's, a, it's an inherent, universal knowledge of the Lord. They're all going to know the Lord. There's going to be no more need to go and to explain uh, who the Lord is or to teach them about the Lord. They're all going to know the Lord. So that's one thing that's different about this new covenant. In the old covenant, you had to be taught. Uh, everything had to be explained to you. There was a number of laws and rituals and, and offerings that you had to make. In this new covenant, it's going to be a, a universal knowledge. And it's going to be a universal relationship, and we'll see that later. Uh, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Uh, that's a verse uh, we often quote. Um, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. We often hear today, uh, to, uh, it's a common thing to hear, forgive but never forget. Um, and I always tell people, we're not very good at doing either. Um, we, we're not really good at forgiving people, and we sure don't forget. Uh, that, that's not a problem that we, we have. Um, and truly, it is impossible for us to willfully choose to forget something. Um, there are things I forget on accident. Um, my wife will always have instructions for me to do in the day or in the week. I hope you accomplish these set things. And they're normally simple things that I have the ability to accomplish. But for some reason, I don't remember them. And it comes about that she'll come home one day and she'll say, did you do such and such, whatever it was. And I look at her and I'll say, did you ask me to do such and such? And she'll say, yes, I did. And I say, well, no, I, I haven't done it. I forgot. Uh, then there are days when she asks me to do things, and I do them, and, I, and she comes home and she says, did you do this today? With a doubting tone. And I say, yes, I did. <laughs> and she says, I don't believe it. I'm surprised. So we don't forget things by choice. We forget things because we're forgetful people. Um, the ability to forgive is also something that we don't do very well. To, to forgive somebody is to take the, the punishment or the penalty in the deal and apply it to yourself when you're not the one at fault. Um, so, you know, somebody, somebody rear ends you, you get out of the car, you have this, they have, you know, damaged thing, you have a damaged thing, and you say, you know what, I'm going to forgive you. And in our terms, that means you can go ahead. But forgiveness is really, I'm going to pay for my damage and I'm going to pay for your damage. We don't do that. That's, that's, that's not a, a, you know, something that we're real good at. So we don't have this ability really to forgive and forget in the way that God does. God is basically saying that your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. What's amazing about that is the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins and our iniquities and he put them on himself and he paid for them. And then he offers us his righteousness. That, that's forgiveness. And he says, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. And it is a, a sign of the deity of Christ and of God, the fact that they can choose to forget something, choose not to remember. Um, so when he says, you know, I have put these out of my mind, never again will he bring them up again. Where we can forgive, in a sense, 
and somebody will come back later and you'll still hold them accountable. You treat them differently. Uh, maybe you don't put them in situations where that can occur and uh, you, you respond differently. And we often have this picture of us and our sin and when we fail and we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I did it again. I, I sinned again in this same sin that I've continued to come back to me, to you and to confess. And I imagine the Lord saying to me, you did what again? Because he's chosen to forget. He's chosen to put it away. And so it's this matter of coming to the Lord and the Lord being so gracious. Because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, on the Day of Atonement, it was a remembrance of all their sins. And they had to put it on the sacrifice and it was done away with. But they had to remember their sins every year. And that was the problem with the Old Covenant. Um, in this one, he says, I will remember them no more. They're not to be brought up again. Um, so th there's so many better promises that are going into this new covenant and this new relationship with the children of Israel and Judah. And the biggest response is, why in the world would they choose to go back under the old covenant? Why in the world would they choose to go back under law, under ritual, under order? And forego a relationship with a God that is going to be merciful to your unrighteousness and is going to remember your sins no more. And it's because they doubt. Truly, they doubt the goodness of God. And I think that there's many here today, there's many in our own time, that we don't really believe that God loves us like he says he loves us. And because of that, it affects everything we do in life. Every little bit of disobedience is a proof of the fact that we have a doubt in God in some way. And so here, this, this covenant promise goes out uh, to the children of Israel and to the children of Judah. And in verse 13, in that he saith the new covenant, he hath made the first old, or obsolete, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Uh, I'm not really sure at the exact time that this epistle was written, but I'm guessing based on what's being written, it was before Titus Vespasian came to Jerusalem and sacked everything and destroyed everything. Um, so in a sense, this is a prophetic statement that eventually, in just a few years, uh, basically everything that you do under the old covenant is going to be destroyed. Uh, God's not going to allow that to continue. And indeed, it hasn't continued uh, since AD 70. Uh, even though the children of Israel are there in, in, in the land, per se, um, they don't have God's approval to a right to that land. And they don't have the ability to offer and to uh, fulfill their law. And they're not even really seeking to do the law uh, in their own land. So from this point on, we see that the new covenant has taken over and the old covenant has been done away with, even though there is a desire for many to go under uh, the old covenant. So we're going to continue in chapter 9, and we're going to look at the old and new covenants contrasted. We remember the old covenant was made with all the children of Israel. They gathered together at Mount Sinai. Moses came and he brought forth the law. And the children of Israel willingly said, all that God says we will do. So we have the Lord bringing this covenant, these promises. Um, we have the children of Israel as the recipients, the receiving it. And we have all the promises given in the law. That if they did all of this, he would be a God to them and they would be his people. And they would be able to dwell in his presence. Uh, and a, a right and a privilege that nobody else on the earth had at that time. We see that there were conditions. 
we see the setting was one that provoked fear, fear in disobeying, fear in going away from God, and a fear in serving God. Uh, we see that they, they, they didn't want to uh, commune with him. They wanted Moses to go. And so Moses is the mediator of that old covenant. Okay, And we see that there was a sign given for that old covenant, and that sign was the Sabbath day. Um, they were given the Sabbath day as a remembrance, as a reminder of the rest they've entered into in a relationship with God under this old covenant. So we're going to be looking for those same things when we get to the new covenant, but right now we're going to see this old and new covenant contrasted. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 9, uh, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and the worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So he goes over the furniture that's in the tabernacle, and he basically tells them, we don't really have too much time to deal with that. I'm just telling you what's, what's in there. And uh, what's interesting is this is what was in the, the tabernacle that was first built. Uh, when the Lord Jesus came and he uh, died on the cross, there was no Ark of the Covenant in that second veil. Uh, there was nothing there. Um, it had been taken and um, pretty much lost uh, for, for a very long time. But there was no, uh, no Ark of the Covenant in that second veil. But this is just given as a description of what was there. Um, verse 6, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of his people, or sins committed in ignorance. Um, so we have here, he's going to get into, like I say, this, this ministry, this high priestly ministry on the Day of Atonement. Um, he's explaining that Daily, the priests were allowed to go into the first part of the tabernacle to fulfill the daily service to God. Um, but the way to the presence of God was closed and could only be entered in on one day of the year by one man and not without blood. So it's a, it's a picture to us of the fact that the, the way to God was not yet open to everyone, let alone more than one person at a time. Um, so the relationship that they had with God was more of a uh, ritualistic relationship based on being in the presence of God. And that's why the law mostly dealt with um, physical uncleanness. We see leprosy. If you touch a dead body, um, if you, uh, you know, have commit fornication or adultery, everything is dealing with the outward, outward uncleanness, something that would defile you in such a way that you could not participate in the rituals that God had set forth. So here he's saying that basically the high priest could only go in one day a year and not without blood. And verse 8, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So really the question is then why, why all the ritual? Why all the purpose? Why, why go through all of this? 
And it was meant to be a picture of everything the person of Christ would show forth. That the person of Christ would accomplish all of these things and make the way to God open for all. At the time, they were just focused on doing the day-to-day. And sometimes I think we get focused on doing the day-to-day. Uh, you know, I, I, have to, I have to get up and uh, I have to read my Bible and I have to pray and then I have to go to work and then I have to come home and I have to watch my son and make dinner and then go to meeting if I need to go to meeting and then come home, speak to the wife, pray, and go to bed. Sound familiar? Does that, does that sound like, you know, a regular day in the day? And what happens is sometimes we get focused on just the tasks of the day. And really, God's goal is that as we get focused on those tasks of the day, as we accomplish those things, we ought to be looking forward. The Bible often speaks of the fact that we are to be found waiting and watching. Well, throughout the day, do you ever find yourself you're not waiting and you're not watching? That if the Lord were to come at this moment, you'd be surprised? Uh, I can't believe he came at this time. And I think it's a reminder to us that though there are things given to us, we have to remember that it's a relationship with God that is desired. God desired to have a relationship with the children of Israel. And eventually they looked at it like a burden, like it was too hard. And even in Malachi, it says, basically, they got bored. They were bored with it. There was too much going on. I, I got to go. And I mean, sometimes today, if you, if you mention an extra meeting at the assembly, I mean, watch out because it's, it's, it's too much. And I think sometimes that's, that's our attitude, how it gets. Um, really, God desires a relationship. And the beauty of the relationship God desires is not only with himself, but with all of us in perfect unity in the body of Christ. So when we gather together, do, do we think of it in that way? I, I look at it and I think of my, my, my grandmother, who's 90, she'll be 92 in a couple days, and one of, the, one of the greatest grievances she has is that the whole family doesn't get together anymore. There's divisions in the family. There's, there's separations that have occurred. And now there, there's no joy for my grandma. Um, even When we all get together, it's just a reminder of the fact that we're not all together. And uh, I tell all of the, the, my, my peers, I said, if, if the day we're all together is at her funeral, I'm going to be extremely disappointed. Extremely disappointed. When we are all together, all the people that are in fellowship here at Claremont, the heart of God is pleased to have his children together. When we're not together, it's not a fact that you're in trouble or you're disobedient. or you're, It's just the fact that we don't have that full joy. We can't appreciate that full joy. And in 1 John, we see this relationship where he wants fellowship with God so that our joy may be full. Well, that fellowship that he's speaking is with one another. And I think that's, that's really the, the goal here and something that the children of Israel had forgotten and they had focused on all the things that they had to do. And so this morning, as, as we're looking at the children of Israel and the things that they did, let us not fall into that same pattern uh, of all the things that we have to do, um, all the things that it should be a, a desire to do. And if it isn't, then we need to search our hearts and find out why. But in this portion here, 8 through 10, speaking of basically everything done on an outward form, Nothing was able to change the conscience. Um, have you ever found yourself, uh, you know, in the middle of prayer, and all of a sudden, 
you're, you know, organizing your schedule for the next week. You know, you're, you're before the Lord one moment, and you're deep in prayer, and then the next week you're figuring out, well, on Friday, where am I going to have lunch? And what am I going to be doing next Friday? And all of a sudden, the mind wanders and goes a, a, a different route. That, that should be an indication to us. Um, in this case here, they were able to do all the outward things, but nothing changed the conscience. Nothing changed the inward man. Um, and we need to be aware that we can do all the outward signs, uh, but if our inward man isn't changed, it doesn't really account for anything. Uh, verse 11 but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. An interesting study is to look for things in the Bible that are not made with hands. Uh, there's a couple of references to things not made with hands. It's a pretty interesting uh, study to look at uh, if you're interested. But this idea that Christ is going to enter in with his own blood. The high priest entered in with the blood of goats, with the blood of calves, and it was enough to satisfy God as a covering to be present that day to accomplish the picture that God was setting up that would eventually come in the person of his son. When the Lord entered into that holy of holies, he entered with his own blood. And we see that the blood that the high priest came in with the goats and calves was enough, was enough just to cover the sins of the people. It didn't take anything away. It was something that God allowed as a covering for that year to take place until the next day of atonement that they would do the same ritual. This is explaining that the blood of Christ purged our sins, cleansed us from sin. Something that is, is so miraculous, really, most people in the world doubt it. They just simply don't believe. They say, how can a man dying on a cross over 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me? And I think of it sometime as like the serpent in the wilderness, like Keith was saying at Yosemite. The serpents were fiery serpents. They came and they were biting people and people were getting poisoned and they were dying. And they came to Moses and they said, go before the Lord and ask him to keep the serpents away. We see that God didn't take the serpents away. The serpents stayed. But he gave them a provision by faith that if they would look at the serpent that Moses would make a brass serpent and stick on a pole in the middle, if they would look at that serpent, they would not die. And the mind says, how in the world is me looking at a serpent going to keep the poison from killing me? It doesn't make sense. Other than the fact that God said it would happen and God is faithful to what he says. So in the same sense that we look at the cross of Calvary as we do every Lord's Day and we remember... know that his blood on the day of his death cleanses us from all our sins because God said so. So 
here we have really a, a picture of the, the offering that Christ is making as a high priest is so much greater than that of the current high priest. It's not even worth really comparing, but he's doing so just to get your mind around it. We have here a picture of the red heifer. Uh, verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. Uh, number 16 uh, will speak of the sacrifice of the red heifer. They say that there was only about five or six of these throughout the entire history of the children of Israel. And what would happen is they would find a red heifer and it would be absolutely perfect. They would take him outside the camp and they would offer him up as a burnt offering and burn everything. And they would throw cedar, hyssop, and scar red scarlet wool on the offering, a you know, symbol of the cross. Um, and everything would be burned. They would take those ashes and when somebody touched a dead body, they would have to come and drink water that had the ashes of the heifer sprinkled in it on the third day and the seventh day or something like that. And they would have to take it, and they would be ceremonially clean. They would be pronounced clean. So here's the comparison. If, if, if those ashes were enough to make a person clean on the outside, how much more the blood of Christ? And the amazing thing about the blood of Christ is why there's such a big deal on the person of Christ, why we do not compromise on the person of Christ. He has to be the Son of God, and he has to be 100% man. He has to be man that he could die in our place, and he has to be God that his blood could atone for an infinite number of people, the blood of an infinite God. So we have this picture here of how much greater uh, the blood of Christ in offering. Uh, and in verse 12, we have in there, once in, he, it says, by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This isn't something that happens again. Uh, he's, uh, it's, it's finished. It's been done. It's been accomplished. Uh, redemption, salvation is freely available to all that would have faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. So we're going to continue. In verse 15, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So this is, why, this is why it came. This is why there was a need for a new covenant. All the sins that were just covered in the Old Testament, everything that they were doing, everything that they were accomplishing in the will of God, under the law that God had given them, um, the sins were still there. They had just been covered. So in order for them to be made right, Christ had to come and die for that, that they would be done away with, that this new covenant could begin. So that's why in this, that by means of death, for the redemption, the buying back of the transgressions, their transgressions that were under the first testament or the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So really this portion is still dealing with specifically the children of Israel. All the things that were responsible under the old covenant, all the failings, was going to be dealt with with the blood of Christ. Verse 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while a testator liveth. Uh, this is speaking of a will. Uh, you know, a will is no good unless the person that made the will dies. And so this, this, this picture of uh, eternal inheritance is only 
able to be given out because the Lord died. Uh, we often think of the perfect life of the Lord. And we see the Lord in many instances raising the dead. And we know that the Lord was sinless, and because he was sinless, he would have never died. He would have never had to die. So the question comes, well, why doesn't he just stay on earth forever and just when somebody dies, just raise him from the dead and give him another chance and just let him keep going? And then they die again and he raises him from the dead again. Well, Christ's life, in the sense, doesn't free us from sins. Christ's death frees us from sins. That's why we remember him in the way that he is asked, on the day that he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed. Christ's death is what cleanses us from sin. His shed blood in our place is what cleanses us from sins. And in order for us to inherit these eternal promises, he had to die. Verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Remission of sins. Uh, we have here the first covenant was founded on blood. This new covenant is founded on blood. And that all the things that he, he sprinkled, he had to purge, he had to cleanse, he had to do away with this uncleanness. And it was the blood that was shed, that was sprinkled, that would clean everything. In the same way, the blood of Christ cleanses all things. Um, verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And here we have a picture. The, the high priest of the Old Testament would enter into the most holy of holies one day a year and would there stand as a, a mediator for all the children of Israel. And it was proof that they couldn't do it on their own. Somebody had to go in their place the same way Christ has gone in our place that he has entered into the most holy place that is heaven itself, the presence of the living God, for us. It's not something we can do ourselves. He's done it for us. And only by him can we be brought into that most holy place. So we have here the tabernacle being a picture. And this is where we get all of our typology, all of our pictures of Christ in the law, in the Old Testament, in the sacrifices, in the offerings, everything there is really a picture of, the, of Christ in some way, either his person or his work. Verse 25, Not yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, again, emphasizing, emphasizing the fact that it's, it's finished. It's been done. It's only a one-time deal. Um, Christ's blood is so perfect that it's not something that needs to continually take place. Uh, verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him 
shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Uh, it's been brought out this idea of and it is appointed unto men once to die. And they say, well, people have been risen from the dead. And, and really the, the thrust of the point is after death, judgment comes. And though people have been raised from the dead, nobody is going to escape the judgment. Everybody's going to be under judgment. And so this idea of <clears throat> it's something that needs to take place now um, because one day you're going to die. And after death comes the judgment. There is no time after. There is no hope for the future at that point. Everything has to be taken care of now. Um, and it's already saying that you need to get right because it's already been done. All the things that you were waiting for, all the things that were promised have already been accomplished. And now it's just a matter of by faith, uh, trusting in Christ. And he's going over this idea that with everything that Christ is going to offer you, why would you go back? Why would you go under that old covenant that pretty soon is not going to exist anymore? You're not even going to be able to practice in that way. And I think sometimes in our own lives, as we've been saved and we've been freed from the sins of our past, and God has said that he remembers them no more, with all the promises that God has to offer and the relationship that he's willing to give us, why in the world would we want to go back? And the truth is, um, we, we, we doubt something about God at that point, that maybe what he has isn't really the best for us, that what he has won't satisfy us, um, that, you know, I'd rather enjoy myself doing what I want to do. Um, and I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. Uh, we see that any, anybody that chooses to do their own will will end up dissatisfied and, and probably suffer greatly. Everything that God has to offer, though there may be suffering ahead, it will be to the glory of God and to the praise of his name. So here we have, as I said this morning, we're just going to be looking at that uh, Old Testament, new, or Old Covenant, New Covenant contrasted, uh, mainly made with the children of Israel. We'll see in a future day in the Millennial Kingdom, all of Israel will be saved. They will enter into this relationship with the Lord where he will reign and we'll see how all those covenants in the past, Abraham's seed, uh, the Davidic covenant, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the land covenant, are all achieved in that day when Christ reigns from Jerusalem. And that, and that is the complete fulfillment of those covenant promises. Um, so what we're going to look at tonight is how, as Gentiles, being afar off from these original promises, uh, how we enter into those, how we partake of it. And we're going to look at it in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at it in the New Testament. Um, so we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee that Thou had in Thy heart uh, to make a new covenant. Uh, Father, seeing that uh, we were not able, we were not, uh, didn't have the hearts to be obedient, uh, we are thankful that Christ has done all things. We are thankful that He has died in our place, that He has offered us the free gift of salvation, that by faith we enter into all these promises, this relationship with Thee that we call Thee our Father. Uh, we pray for this day as we go out that we would look uh, to his coming, that we would be found waiting and watching, and, Father, that we would do all things that please and glorify thee. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.